coming up on the Money Beat Podcast. Yes, the market's been making a bet the last few weeks, and that bet is on the good Trump. Might they get that bet wrong? And also, big OPEC meeting on Wednesday. What does it mean for the market? What does it mean for you? We will preview it. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. And you know, Grosser, I just realized that Usually I say, hi, everybody. It's Paul and Steve here in the studio in New York City. And, and they announce that at the top of the, the program. In they do. In a recorded segment. You're from re- our you've been redundant for months. I've been redundant for, I've been redundant for years, but especially on this one issue. I've, I've and I've also noticed like, you always like, introduce both of us and you ask the guests how they're doing, but you never ask how I'm doing. How are you doing, Stephen Grosser? A little bit of a cold, but other than that, good. You are? Yeah. Okay. Well, see, there, uh, you know, there we go. Uh you might have noticed over the last couple of uh, trading sessions out there, folks, in, in stock buying and selling land, markets kind of leveled off after the, the big post-election rally. Now we're kind of taking – which has actually kind of given everybody a moment to kind of step back and say, all right, what exactly just happened? What did we just see? To help us answer that question, we have one of our colleagues calling in from London, James McIntosh, WSJ columnist. James, how are you? Hey, all, all well here. Thank you for taking I know it's a little later there. Oh, it's a lot later there in London, so we appreciate you taking a little time, James. Uh, so you wrote a column. This went out yesterday. Why don't you tell us – basically the, the question is the market is telling us a story. What is the story? Why don't you tell us what you think the market is telling us and – what you think the market might be getting right or wrong about that story. Okay, so, well, in, in two words, the story is good Trump. Um, yeah. the, the, <laughs> the, the, mar- the, the markets think that they like Trump. So we've right. got, um, uh, we're going to have uh, growth in the U.S., we're going to have some inflation in the U.S., but not runaway. Um, uh, we're going to have uh, perhaps some punishment for emerging markets, as he's talked about Mexico, China, but they're not going to retaliate and cause a disastrous global trade war. Uh, we're not going back to the 1930s. Right. Um, and that uh, there won't be uh, some horrific foreign policy mistake um, uh, from someone who's a foreign policy neophyte. So we're not going to get uh, you know something that's appalling for the markets, like Russian tanks rolling across Europe, um, for example. Um, so uh, that's, the, that's the, you know, in, in, in very, very short story right. of what's happening in the markets at the moment. And, it, and it's across pretty much everything is telling the same story. Right. So, so basically, everything's going to be perfect. Um, We're not gonna, quite perfect, but, yeah, but it's going to be, but it's gonna be a lot better, right? right, right, right. Yeah, they're no, taking the optimistic yeah. side. They're interpreting all of what he said about his policies, and they're taking the optimistic side of it. Yeah, well, it's not so much the optimistic as selectively taking only the policies that they that, that are good. Right. So yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of it. things that that Trump has said, which would be very bad for the markets, and those things are not being not being priced in. And he mostly, to be fair, hasn't been repeating those things or focusing on those things. Um, uh, although, I mean, he did he did talk today about locking up people who burn the flag for a year, and you know, violating the U.S. Constitution isn't usually a good way for a U.S. president <laughs> to sort of boost uh, boost the economy. But you know, nonetheless, this is uh, this is definitely the market taking the the positive spin on um, on Trump. Right now, it, it it took that spin pretty quickly. Well, I mean, I think actually, James, sort of you touched on this. That it took the, that spin, but it was building off of a base of 
strong, you know, improving economic data, improving inflation data, sort of that had been going on since July, right? Yeah, exactly. So this, this, uh, a chunk of this story, not all of it, the emerging markets bit is new. Um, that, that's clearly post-Trump. But the, before that, the story had been building since July. The bonds, bond yields had been steadily selling off. Um, cyclical stocks, which are the ones that do well when the economy is doing well, had been uh, uh, beating defensive stocks. Um, so in, in some cases, the, the ratio actually looks very like the bond yield if you overlay them on each other. Um, uh, you know, they, they just move together. Um, the, the bond proxies in the stock market have been selling off as bond yields rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, this had all been, all been happening since July. So in a sense... Trump, Trump's sort of words about infrastructure stimulus and tax cuts and corporate tax cuts and all these sorts of things that the market likes. Um, he was pushing at an open door, as it were, for the market. So uh, the markets were already starting to feel that that was happening. And then uh, and then they sort of got confirmation, in a sense, from his, his policies yeah. uh, that definitely we were going to get more inflation. A whole bunch of people who had been a bit sceptical piled in and... Uh, and then, in fact, we've had some economic data yeah. recently, of course, which has backed it up even further. Um, and, and today, the uh, GDP the, report, the GDP today. revision. Yeah. So. so, so let's get to the meat of your your column, which is it's a very you know, uh, what's the what's the word? Challenging. Let's say just challenging premise. You know, uh, look, the, the bond markets saying one thing, telling a story. Stock markets telling a story. Uh, currencies are telling a story. And the question you raise is, can they all be wrong? Yeah. Exactly. So they're all, it's internally consistent. And, uh, you know, markets are pretty efficient, right? They, it's, it's generally, generally hard to make. Yeah, yeah. It's generally hard to beat the market. Now, this is perfect efficient market right. theory nonsense. But, but broadly speaking, it's pretty damn hard to beat the market, as uh, I'm sure all the readers know. Um, but in general, markets tend to be internally consistent. So if they weren't, mm-hmm. you'd be able to make free money by saying, well, you know, the bond market says there's going to be more inflation, but the stock market says there isn't going to be any more inflation. Well, I could arbitrage the two and, and make a relatively low-risk profit. That's very hard to do because there's too many guys out there ready to do it. So those sorts of free arbitrages don't appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the markets tend to be fairly consistent uh, uh, when, when they are driven by big macro views as they are at the moment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their premise is right. So the same premise is behind all of it, which is this good Trump idea. Now, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful. Maybe, maybe it'll all turn out well, right? This is good. Right. But there's definitely some big risks out there, and those risks at the moment are being ignored by the markets, because we just don't know, right? I mean, he's proven himself to be pretty volatile already. Right. Um, he's definitely deeply unconventional. Um, he's he's not, in his words beforehand, been particularly market friendly. I mean, he was saying that stocks are already in a bubble. It's not, you know, if you think stocks are in a bubble, you don't want them to go up any further, right? You want mm-hmm. them to go down uh, if you're a policymaker as opposed to a shareholder. So there's there's things out there that, you know, at the very least ought to raise some questions about this story and how strong it is. But the market's really, you know, got its teeth into the story and is, and is running with it. And, um, the, you know, that makes me think that probably we'll get a little bit of settling down here. Um, uh, people do. There is there is some history on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, markets do have a tendency to classify presidents as good or bad, um, and pile onto that story. Um, right, and, which is uh, in the past they haven't got a very good record. Right, which is another point you made in the, in the column, and you pulled up some data looking at, uh, you know, the stock markets 
for different presidents between Election Day and Inauguration Day. Yeah, exactly. And what happened after that, yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, this comes with a massive health warning, right? There's a lot of things that go on in the markets. (laughs) And, you know, one conclusion that you could reasonably draw is actually presidents are just a lot less important than they like to think they are when it comes to Mm -hmm. stock market prices. But, um, uh, I mean, if you, you know, some of the examples that really stand out, so... Uh, you know, Obama, um, when he was elected in 2008, the market then fell 20% uh, before the inauguration day. Um, after that, in the uh, the rest of the term before he was re-elected, it went up by 77%. Right. So if that was the market expressing a view on Obama, and I think that would be grotesquely simplistic. To right, say knowing was, what happened in 2008. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 But to the extent that it was an, ex- an expression of an opinion on Obama, it was just wrong. Right. Um, uh, you know, the same goes with uh, uh, FDR. You mentioned, yeah. I mean, uh, FDR. LBJ, Nixon, FDR yeah. was again down nineteen percent in the in the uh, months between right. his election and the inauguration. The market rose one hundred and ninety four percent in his first term. I mean, you know, this was you know, obviously people can argue about what the right, correlation again, was, but right, isn't uh, onset you know. of the Great Depression going yeah, on, exactly, but, yeah. Um, and the same with Hoover, of course, in the other direction. Hoover was very right. excited about businessman president. Um, I wonder if where we've heard that before. But um, <laughs> market was up 13% um, by the time he was inaugurated. And, of course, you know, 1929 came along, you know, that year. Right. And, uh, and uh, you know, overall in his, in his one term, the market was down 71.6%. So, you know, it's... I mean, I'm, I'm not forecasting that that's going to happen. Um, but at the very least, one should be skeptical about the idea of running away with a story about a president um, and and look at other things. Right. And there are other things going on. Yeah, um, we certainly hope that uh, we're not going to get any Trumpvilles you know, <laughs> popping up anytime soon. That would be pretty yeah, bad. Yeah, Trump, Trump dam. Um, right, right. You know, I, think, I think a Trump wall is more likely, right? Yeah. yeah. Or a fence, at least. Why do you think the market has taken, you know, his sort of picked and choose through his policies and focused on like the good Trump? Well, partly, I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, a general end of year effect that people like to, like to, uh, uh, buy into. Um, uh, there's the fact that it was going in that direction already, which gives it some momentum. Um, but why it reversed in the middle of the night? I mean, I think that after it fell very sharply in the middle of the night on election night, market was limit down 5% in mm-hmm. S&P futures. And I think people thought, as I did actually, that this was a buying opportunity. Um, a lot of people had the uh, Brexit model in their heads. A lot of investors had that. And uh, you know, Brexit had provided a wonderful buying opportunity for the market. Um, I think a lot of people had that thought in advance. In fact, I, I know they did because I was talking to them and yeah, yeah. giving that as an example. Um, so when it was limit down, a lot of people were piling in. Um, uh, I think that once that happened, that gave the market some momentum. And then when he started speaking, um, you know, in the middle of the night, that was, uh, you know, he, he gave a very considered speech, his, his acceptance speech. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he dropped the whole let's lock up Hillary thing. He he sounded a bit more presidential than usual, if rather rambling. Yeah. Um, and uh, that gave people a lot of reassurance, frankly, and, and let them start betting on the good Trump. And of course, once the market gets momentum, the people who were very skeptical, okay, they held out for a bit, right? But then they really felt they had to join in because they thought they were wrong because they were losing money hand over fist. I, I mean, I, I afford to keep doing that. I, mean, I think it was 
even easier than that. I mean, the market was prepared for Hillary Clinton to win. They expect large, you know, for the most part expected that, thought there'd be a split between uh, split control again where you'd have Congress in the hands of the GOP and, and White House and Democratic hands. And they were ready for that. And it took them a little while to figure out exactly what was happening on election night. But once they realized you were going to have a GOP White House and a GOP Congress and that that is generally good for the stock market, at least, I think they, they quickly just adapted. And that's why you saw the, the rapid turnaround. It's I mean, not actually it. clear that that is particularly good for the stock market. Um, well, at least I that's, mean, that's again, the perception. Is very mixed that's the this, perception, right? right? The perception, at well, least, is like, that. No, well, I mean, like, historically, markets tend to, like... A sharing of power, because nothing gets right. done, and, and they but can But they move think, forward. That, look, they, they, this is what I, I think. I'm just talking figured, about performance, right? That a GOP is more friendly to businesses, more friendly to corporations. There's a lot of you know pro-business policies that could get enacted, and that'll be good at least in the short term. And they bought on that. Well, I mean, you know, it's possible, but you know, the markets tended to do better under Democrats. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's very skeptical. Um, sorry, I'm I'm very skeptical about that. Um, I'm skeptical you know, about it too. I'm, I'm not saying I think a, that's really going to happen. I'm saying. I well, think I mean, the, the corporate perception. the corporate tax thing is a big thing. That's the what I was going to bring up. Really yeah. could boost profits right. a lot. I mean, if that goes through, I mean, I I, I think it's pretty unlikely that it's going to drop to fifteen percent, which is yeah. uh, the the number that Trump put out there. Um, uh, you know, the the plan in I think that the House plan is at twenty five, and maybe it comes in a bit lower than that. But that could be very very good for some stocks, and clearly right. uh, good overall for the market. Um, and yeah, that sure that has an effect, but it's not it's not obvious to me that that should have an effect on gold, for example, or yeah. you know uh, a, any of these other things. You know, a whole bunch of things have all been moving together, um, and that is it's much less clear why that should happen um, from these these sort of little policy stories. No, and, and I, I little is quite a big policy story. Yeah, no, tax, and right? I, yeah. I I I sort of like one of the things that like when we were talking to people after the election. One of the things that struck me as very odd was they're like this, you know, they were looking at uh, sort of the idea of tariffs and trade wars and things like that and say, no, you know, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be more like Reagan, not like the 1930s. Um, that was and I was like, what makes you so positive of that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's, yeah, but there's exactly. a lot of uns- uncertainty there. Then there's the foreign policy issue. There's a lot of uncertainty there. Right, right. And he hasn't settled that either by choosing, you know, um, you know the State Department, and then on top of you know that you have this big fiscal stimulus you kept hearing about, but in reality his plan is going to be putting the money, uh, most of the money, like you know through tax credits, to spur private investment, and the private investment might not be that effective at boosting you know inflation through boosting wages and employing more people as people had sort of hoped for. And, and frankly, even if it came out and was uh, the full trillion that people right. have talked about, which is not actually what his plan currently says, right. but if it was the full trillion, so being sort of super generous to yeah. him, as it were, uh, that's that amounts to, oh, it's over 10 years and amounts to half percent of GDP extra spending. Now, it's not to be, it's not nothing, right? I mean, right, it's not nothing, God but knows it's American not. bridges need it, but well, yes, you know, they do. it's yeah, not transformative. Us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. James, we're going to let you go. Appreciate your time. Thank you very Thank much. You. And when we come back, folks, don't go away. After this message, uh, there is a meeting in Vienna tomorrow of OPEC ministers. What is going to happen? That's what the oil market wants to know. We'll preview it. Want to retire rich? 
Check out the Watching Your Wealth podcast for everything you need to know about building your wealth and protecting your money. Only on WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. I have to tell you, Stephen Grosser, I'm a little disappointed now that I don't get to say, you know, hey, Paul and Stephen, coming to you from the studio in New York City. Oh, I feel like I like to... You know what disappointed me? I like me? to make that point. I don't know. Just It's kind of homey to me. I don't know. Something about it. Like, what's disappointing to you? You didn't dance us back to, uh, from the break. I didn't dance us back from the break? Yeah. You normally get your little you know, shoulders grooving to yeah, the music. Yeah, sometimes I do. I'm a little... I got to tell you, I'm a little nervous about this next segment. Yeah. I am. I am too. Because... Tim Pucco's on fire. Two guests, two guests fire. with us today, folks. Uh, as we promised you, we're going to talk about the OPEC meeting that is happening tomorrow in Vienna. What might happen, what might not happen, what it might mean, well, what it will mean for the, the oil market. And to help us do that, we have Allison Sider. Allison, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Uh, and a kind of salty Tim Pucco. That's a good description. Totally Pucco, salty. Uh, yeah. Welcome to the podcast today. Glad to have you back on again. You, My, you thanks, guys. It's good to be back. Is, is he, something wrong with you, Tim? When was the last okay? time I was on? Do you even remember? Well, I mean, usually he's uh, on for our fashion. He's he our fa- fashion commenter. He was on more recently than that. Though. I was wearing a short sleeve shirt the last time you had me on. That's how long ago no, it was. No, it was not. No way. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. But you're, that's not I'm what's insulted. got you so fired. I'm insulted. I, We've I got, know you are. We, what, what market is more volatile and more interesting than oil right now? Well, yeah, you haven't to... brought on your star energy hey, writer for on. months. It's are you s- trying to mimic the market you cover by being volatile? Because I saw you in the newsroom today. You're a little fired up. It's been trading between what's, what's 40 up with and It's Pucco just my natural way. Like just, I'm just being very natched today. That's all. You are? Yeah. I don't know. I don't trust this Puko. It hasn't been that volatile. Oil hasn't been that volatile? Yeah, it's trading between 40 and 50. I mean, that's, you know, like a 10, 20% swing. Yeah, big deal. Do you see, folks, you can't see him. He's sitting there. He's got his arms folded on the thing. He looks very serious. He's a little smile, cracking a little smile now, but very serious. This is going to be an interesting. Allison, what is the matter like with Tim Puko? Oh, you're asking me? I sit next yeah, to him I all know. day, every day. You got to explain this to us. What's, what's going on with this guy? I today? think his mood rises and falls with oil prices. He it just does, cares yeah. that much. He's, he's I highly, care so much. He's highly correlated. He is. Yeah. yeah. And it's been down the last, what, three days? Me and OPEC, hand in hand. Just, you know. All right. Well, all right. Let, let's get into it here, folks. Uh, oil markets down today. NYMEX crude, Brent crude, both down pretty pretty sharply. What is the latest on this meeting that is happening tomorrow? What can we expect out of this? I was just going to say it's been hard to keep track because it's like yeah. they've been talking for so long now. They've been talking for so long and they've been going back and forth. And I think one of the interesting things that has developed just in the past couple of days is the market seems to keep going in exactly the opposite direction of what you would expect considering what they're saying. So Sunday, Monday, you have the Saudis come out and say that, hey, you know, well, we're not doing this meeting with Russia and maybe the market will balance even if we don't do a deal. It seemed very bearish, like they're almost conditioning the market, uh, just like Yellen might, not to expect them to actually do anything. And yet the market then goes up two plus percent. Today, you have signs of maybe some cooperation. There's a little bit of give um, from Iraq, um, Iran. There's word from Ecuador that Iran is playing ball. Of course, you never you got to consider the source, Ecuador, how trustworthy are they? Um, certainly one of the countries that is you know, least apt to cut and most interested in there being a cut from all the other members. But regardless, it, it, there are different signs of 
uh, potential compromise, and yet the market goes the opposite way. Now it's going down. And it's led me to this conclusion, um, and, and some of this is just gut instinct. I haven't even been able to work out the logic completely, but these these like counterfactual moves um, oil completely still locked in a range, the one that Grosser alluded to between 40 and 50, almost makes me think that you know maybe there won't be much after this meeting. Maybe it'll be another Doha. Maybe it'll be another uh, presidential election where you get a, a very sharp, immediate move that is just kind of you know the, uh, 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 first blush reaction, but that within hours or even by the time the market opens the next morning, things are roughly back to normal. We've seen this happen a couple times. We've seen, I mean, post-Brexit, it took a little bit longer. It wasn't like an, an immediate thing, but, um, but that happened with Brexit too. Um, and you know, there are a lot of crowded trades around the market. I feel like we're, we always discuss that every time I'm here. Oil is no different. Um, you've seen in the options market, um, puts at, uh, I'm sorry, calls at 55 and puts at 40 soaring. Everyone's just betting that there's going to be volatility. And, you know, wait, I mean, you guys have been doing this a lot longer than I have. What do they say happens when everyone's betting on the same thing to happen? Uh, the exact that that's what happens. What everyone's betting on is exactly what happens. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, right. So expect that. So expect that. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, Allison, a big question, I guess, is uh, from reading the stories that I'm wondering about is I, I see people talking about production freezes, cuts. I mean, what? What really does need to happen in this meeting for this to make any kind of dent in what's in the dynamics of the oil market? You know, it's kind of interesting because I'm not sure there's any outcome that could make that would be really game changing. I don't know. Maybe, Tim, you've heard otherwise, but very few of the people I speak to are expecting to emerge from this meeting with oil prices heading you know north of sixty dollars. Mm-hmm. I really you know, we're not talking about oil going that much higher. Um, I think one of the issues is that in the run-up to this meeting, OPEC producers have started pumping so much more oil that now to get a meaningful cut, you need an even larger um, production cut. So, you know, that looks like it would be really difficult to achieve. And for it to be credible, I mean, you'd really need Saudi Arabia to take the bulk of any kind of production cut. And I'm not sure they're willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah, they've been put in a position where, once again, they're the sole ones holding the water. And it didn't work out for them in the 80s, and I don't think it worked out for them in the past couple of years. So I don't really think that that um, that that they're interested in that. Um, I, I know that I shouldn't say I know, but from what I read, it certainly does seem like they are interested in uh, that they're willing to take the leadership role in a substantial cut. But I just I can't I don't think the math works out um, if it's all left to them again that they would really do it. Uh, and just you know, to your, to your question, Paul, you would probably have to have a, like a cut of about a million barrels a day, uh, and you would have to have Russia participate. Because if Russia doesn't participate, where are we? And they have, they, they're not participating. They're threatening to ramp up oil. Now, and they're, put, they're so. not part of OPEC. Right. right? No. That's important to point out. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, Saudi Arabia has been pushing for full participation or some kind of um, concessions from everyone involved. But the people I speak with, you know, in the market, I don't think they find any other OPEC member credible. So, you know, if the cuts aren't coming from Saudi right. Arabia, then I don't know if the market's uh, going to buy it. And Saudi Arabia is also why we're in this situation to begin with. Because in 2014, I mean, they're the ones who ramped up production to basically grab market share, right? That's right. So, I mean, I guess the question 
you know, simply comes. What are your expectations? Do we have no agreement? Do we kick the can down the road with some meaningless agreement? Or are we going to get, you know, like real production cuts? Well, my position for months has been, or at least, maybe not months, but certainly at least since the September tentative agreement has been that it seems like OPEC is just setting up the market to uh, essentially allow it to keep playing this game, like when you allude to kicking the can down the road. You know, they've been essentially jawboning since February, repeatedly talking about doing a deal and then not doing one, uh, just restarting talks on a deal or talking about a deal as soon as the first one falls through. And so in September... Like central bankers. Right, right. And so in September, they get you know something like a preliminary agreement out there I, I feel like they've done it enough times that, to Ali's point about how investors feel, they're going to really have no credibility. What very little they had will be gone if they don't come up with something. So my expectation would be that they come up with just enough that they essentially save face, um, but still also don't have to do anything. They can pretty easily construct some sort of deal where they say, oh, we're going to cut X and it's not very it's not a very large number to begin with, and then make it almost impossible to enforce. Like even no matter what they do, you're going to be relying on these countries to not cheat on the quotas that have set and essentially uh, overturn decades of precedent of them all cheating against quotas that are set. Right. So you know it just seems like to me that they just want to continue the spin cycle for as long as they can. I mean, the other thing though is that OPEC really has to walk this fine line. I mean the members need oil prices to be higher to balance their own budgets, but they don't want them to be too high. I mean that brings on a lot of U.S. production or, or non-OPEC production that could sort of put us back into the same uh, oversupply situation we've been in the last couple of years. So, you know, as to whether we'll see meaningful production cuts, I don't think they want to cut back too much. I think that's a really important point. I've heard a lot of investors say exactly that, that, that OPEC does not want prices at $60. And that makes a lot of sense to me, too, for all the reasons that Ali just laid out. What, what, a, what, a, what, what could happen to oil prices? I mean, what is the sort of expectation from the, you know, the traders and investors that you're talking to of where oil prices go if we get some kind of agreement that sort of kicks the can down the road? It seems like 55 is about the best oh. case scenario. Uh, if we get that agreement that kicks the can down the road, I think we, you know, maybe hover around 50. I don't really think that we'd change very much. If I've heard worst case scenarios, like if there's no deal, uh, Bank of America stands out, but they're not the only ones that have predicted this, uh, that you'll see $35 oil. It might only be brief, um, but but that's, I feel like, a fairly uh, deep consensus right now that with no deal, you could drop below 40, at least for a little bit. Uh, I guess my worry from cover, you know, having to cover this every day is that we'll get some kind of very ambiguous deal that will require a lot of um, interpretation and a lot of oversight. Who's you know who's cheating? Who's really right. pr- who's really complying? Surely will this will be, be the case, right? And that will sort of st- it'll still be kind of a day by day thing where nobody quite believes it, and we'll still have to monitor it every day. Well, do you think that in that situation it ends up being the kind of thing where? People who are in the oil market, traders, they kind of know the game that OPEC plays. They know the game that is going to be played, and they can kind of look through it, see, kind of read the tea leaves. And the, on the surface of it, you might get a deal that sounds disappointing, and you think, oh, my God, the oil market's going to sell off. But then it really doesn't because everyone understands what's actually going on here anyhow. I think that's true, and I think that the other thing to note is that a lot of people out there when push comes to shove, don't think that OPEC is really the end-all, be-all. That 
there. I was just, just got a note from Raymond James yesterday that made an excellent point about uh, spot prices shifting a little bit. So there's not the advantage for uh, international exporters to send more oil into the U.S. Mm-hmm. That had been um, there had been a situation, you know, in the past couple months where uh, U.S. oil on the Gulf Coast actually sold at a premium to international oil, and that led to imports just really, really ramping up to, to like, I think a four-year high, if I remember correctly. And that was a, a big impact on, on sending stockpiles higher. And if U.S. stockpiles are higher, then everyone looks and says, oh, OMG, oversupply, OMG, oversupply. Mm-hmm. And if that spread flips, which it has, and stays flipped long enough to keep exports you know, out of the U.S., then you could get to stockpiles draining. And again, then, then the point is OPEC doesn't matter. If you have stockpiles draining in a big market like the U.S., people will, some people at least will think, yeah. okay, the market is rebalancing and we don't need to have sub-40 oil because we're at an equilibrium. You know, taking a step back and looking at this in sort of from a much more macro standpoint, I mean, if oil does fall at this point, that that has serious ramifications. I mean, don't forget when we rose up to the sort of 40-50 band that we've been in for a while, you know, now earnings are finally back to growing. The deflationary pressure, and we're starting to see inflation. I mean, this will have ripple right. effects across our economy and across other asset classes. So it's something that is, I think, you know, important to watch. Right. No, that's a very good point. I, I do think that people are uh, underestimating the chance of us going back to a panic like we had in January and February. I don't think it's likely, but I think that it's still very possible for the reasons that that Steve mentioned. You know, if you if you I mean a lot of the commodity markets, commodity markets were at the center of that panic and concerns about oversupply, um, emerging markets, uh, tepid growth around the world. And if you if you go back to a point where oil is in free fall again, um, there's no reason you couldn't get there because a lot of the reasons that commodity markets across the board have rebalanced was really just speculation. A lot of investors in, an, in a time of low, I mean, I make this point over and over again, but in a time of low yield, it's like commodities was the one big lottery ticket out there where they could maybe find a winner. And so the market's got a real cushion from that of essentially bottom pickers coming in and creating for a few months a self-fulfilling prophecy where, where things came back. And that's not necessarily like based in the supply and demand reality. And you can very easily, if, if this output surge of oil continues around the world, you could easily get yourself into that spiral again where oversupplied commodity markets remind everyone of, of, of some systemic issues with the global economy. All right. Uh, let's leave it there. Tim Puko, Allison Sayeth, thank you very much, both of you, for coming in today. Everyone, thank you for listening. Stay, keep your, your ears and eyes and everything peeled to uh, tune to WSJ.com. We'll have everything you need tomorrow on this important meeting, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.